Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on December 21st, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... The robotic agents in that series, or at least they alluded to specific agents having very specific limitations into what they're allowed or not allowed to do. So they're, you know, they implied, for instance, that the, uh, the agents were, they had hard limitations about uh, using lethal force, for instance. That's Gordon Briggs talking about Westworld. He's a postdoc at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory, and he's the co-author of an article in the January issue of Scientific American titled, The Case for Robot Disobedience. He recently earned a joint doctorate in computer and cognitive science from Tufts University, working with his co-author, Matthias Schutz, director of the Human-Robot Interaction Lab at Tufts. The subhead for their article reads, Don't worry about defiant machines. Devious masters and misunderstood commands are a bigger threat. I spoke to Briggs by phone. So it's sometime in the future, and I'm in uh, my house with my friend and my robot. And my friend is a funny guy, and my robot's sitting there. My robot is programmed to protect me, of course. And uh, my friend is cracking jokes, and I just say instinctively, uh, this guy's killing me. And the robot attacks my friend and subdues him because it was under the impression, based on what I said, that... I was in great danger. So it seems to me that uh, what you're really trying to do is prevent that kind of thing from happening. Um, that's certainly one of the, the many things that uh, <laughs> you know we, we don't want to to happen. That's a that's a funny case in that uh, the the robot has to to make an inference based off of the the sort of side comment. Uh, so that's that requires a bit of a you know sophisticated reasoning. It, it, in and of itself, uh, before it could even derive, you know, a goal to, uh, <laughs> uh protect you from the, uh, the facetious, uh, threat. But yeah, in general, we, we, we're interested in cases where the robot should actually not act as opposed to, to act. And, and a lot of research is, is directed in giving robots new capabilities and commanding them in natural language to access those capabilities. But there's the, this flip, the, this reverse problem of, well, just because the robot can do something, you know, even as complex as uh, <laughs> intervening in a social situation, um, it isn't necessarily always appropriate to do so. So we're interested in, uh, in developing mechanisms to uh, allow the robot to actually reason about when it is and is not appropriate to, to act and what the appropriate response should be. Let me read a, a short paragraph from the story. For the time being, superintelligent machines that pose an existential threat to humanity are the least of our worries. The more immediate concern is how to prevent robots or machines with rudimentary language and AI capabilities from inadvertently harming people, property, the environment, or themselves. And I, I like, we can get back to this later, but, yeah. you know, you open that paragraph with, for the time being. So maybe we'll talk about what what may be on the horizon later that you don't talk about in the article. Oh, sure. <laughs> so uh, we, we have a real issue here that AI is starting to become more and more a part of our lives. I mean, just the the idea of uh, our our driverless cars, that seems to be something that, is really on the horizon. So we need to really address this issue of giving AI the power to 
to some degree interpret things and come up with a response that makes sense in a context, even if it's not directly the literal thing that it might have heard to do. Right. Um, and the uh, driverless car is, is, is one you know, good example. Uh, I think in the, the piece we, we talk about, you know, an instance where, you know, perhaps the person is running late and sort of insists that the, uh, the, the car, for instance, maybe drive faster when, you know, that may not be the safest thing to do. And so uh, in some sense, there, there needs to be some sort of reasoning about when it is or is not appropriate to, you know, heed the, the literal uh, commands of the human uh, that's in charge of the, the machine uh, and what their, you know, their sort of deeper intentions are. I mean, clearly they don't intend to get in an accident, but uh, well, the human may not be fully aware of all the details of the scenario to realize what the potential hazards are, or, or they may just be more uh, willing to take risks uh, than the system or the system designers you know, might be comfortable with. So there's a variety of different considerations that, that have to go into uh, whether or not an autonomous system actually accepts a human directive beyond whether or not it is just capable or knowledgeable of how to actually execute those, those directives. Do we have a template for this kind of a situation with the military? Because, you know, military people are uh, trained to follow orders, but you're also supposed to exercise your judgment when you are given what you perceive to be an illegal order. Right. And, and actually, a lot of this interest in um, robot ethics and machine ethics, I think, uh, came to sort of the public forefront when uh, there was a researcher down at uh, Georgia Tech, uh, Ronald Arkin, uh, who really did a lot of the initial work. And his research was on enabling autonomous systems to be able to appropriately decide when or when not to use lethal force in a military context. So a lot of this, uh, he proposed something called the ethical governor, which was something that would take in best knowledge that the robot has of the situation and see how this particular command uh, comports with its sort of formalized uh, representation of the laws of war and the rules of engagement. And it would decide whether or not to carry out that order. Yeah. And I take it that the term governor in this case comes from the automobile use of the word governor or in me mechanical yes. devices yeah, in general. Yeah, he made the analogy than, to the, the governor yeah. of, uh, on steam engines. Right, to keep it from uh, going too fast. Right. Yeah, and, and that's what I've been thinking about as I read the whole article, was about you're really just trying to install governors all over the place to keep things from getting out of control in an AI way. Yeah, right. There's an experiment that you conducted that you discuss in the article that's pretty interesting where uh, – you have a robot who builds a tower, and then you have people instruct the robot to knock the tower down that the robot just built. Yes. And in one case, the robot just knocks it down. But in, in another case, the robot is programmed to plead with the people telling it to knock, it, knock the tower down. The robot pleads with them, please, I worked really hard on it. Please don't make me knock it down, etc. And ultimately... Uh, the robot will follow the command if the people are persistent enough in their order giving. Right. But what's really interesting is that 
uh, about half the test subjects ultimately decided to let the robot leave the tower standing. Correct. But what's really interesting is this little little end of the paragraph, uh, and you don't go into it in the article, the the, uh, the reasoning here, mm-hmm. if you know what it is. I'm just curious because uh, there's, there's not space in the article for it. But you wrote here, most of the test subjects in the group reported some level of discomfort when they ordered the robot to knock down the red tower. And this is after the robot is pleading with them, please don't make me knock it down. But here's the really interesting part. We were surprised to find, however, that their level of discomfort had little bearing on their decision to leave the tower standing or not. So the people who felt uncomfortable uh, were apparently just as likely to continue to tell the robot to knock it down than were the people who didn't have any feelings. That's right. So what does that tell us? Well, I, I think it tells us that uh, this particular scenario is actually, it was a bit more complex than we had, we had first thought. Um, our initial hypothesis related to the discomfort level, the, uh, the level of agency uh, that the person would ascribe to the robot, you know, whether they thought it was, uh, mach- you know, how machine-like or, or how human-like or, or animal-like they thought the, the robot was, would have a strong effect on whether or not they decided to push the robot, uh, despite the uh, the sort of protest and, and and sort of affective or emotional display that the robot produced, um, and we found that that really actually didn't strongly affect people's behaviors, and so we actually did a variety of follow ups, and we're still actually running some follow ups to um, tease out well what really does seem to cause people to either refrain from forcing the, the, the robot to do this or, or, or they just give up and, and kind of heed the robot's protests. And one of the directions that it's starting to point to is that it's really just about what people infer about the uh, capabilities or the, the social context of the situation. So if they believe that the robot is just, you know, because it protests multiple times, uh, just incapable of carrying out the task that gets been pre-programmed to reject it, then they may not push it enough times to actually override that uh, temporary. So, uh, on the flip side, you know, and, and that's something that they might infer if they believe that the robot has low agency, that it's just a machine has been programmed to do something. Now, some subjects ascribe high agency to it because it, it, it can communicate a natural language and it has relatively human-like sort of effective capabilities within the confines of this very simple scenario and script. So some people infer high levels of agency. But in that case, it, what might be pushing people to uh, to force the robot is, is sort of a sense of social obligation. Like, well, you know, given this situation, you have been tasked to be my subordinate, and I don't care if you don't like it, you're, you're going to knock down that tower. <laughs> so there's multiple uh, different explanations as to why people are either refraining or not refraining um, based off of the level of agency they ascribe to the robot. So I think it just shows that a very simple interaction like this is actually relatively complicated and you have to kind of tease out precisely which of these multiple uh, explanations really is applicable for any given subject. Right. So what what I took to be uh, deep empathy on the part of some people might be just their reaction to, well, no matter how many times I tell it to do it, it's not going to do it, so I'm not going to waste my right, time. Right, exactly. Even if they're feeling something about it because of the, the humanoid-like... Mm-hmm 
appearance and behavior of the robot, they're still going to fall back on the, uh, well, I, you know, I keep clicking the button and no pellets coming out. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give up now. <laughs> exactly. It's, and beyond that, it's, it's also this disconnect between, well, we instinctually have an emotional response to, uh, emotional displays, you know, from inanimate objects. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we act upon that. You know, we can understand that this, sometimes people can understand, well, I'm just getting this reaction because it's, it's sort of instinct, but that doesn't necessarily affect their, their decision-making in a particular interaction context. Sure. Sure. So in, in the article, you, uh, you cite, uh, the movies 2001 and of course the famous Hal. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Dave, yep. I'm afraid I can't do that. And, uh, and the movie Ex Machina, which I saw, which was thought-provoking. Mm -hmm. um, I assume that Westworld aired too late for you to do any commentary. Uh, on the yes, sadly, yes. Otherwise, that would have been a good, a good, uh, a good series to uh, to have referenced. You have any thoughts about Westworld? Probably. I, I think there's a there's a lot of different uh, uh, things to uh, to talk about there. It's hard to really uh, articulate on the fly. I thought it was interesting, though, that, uh, that, that they did have the robotic agents in that series. Uh, they did have very explicit, um, th or at least they alluded to specific agents having very specific limitations into what they're allowed or not allowed to do. So they're, you know, they implied, for instance, that the, uh, the agents were, they had hard limitations about uh, using lethal force, for instance where it seemed like there were some agents that even if they wanted to use lethal force were completely incapable of doing that. Right. So, uh, which is very similar to sort of considerations that, uh, sort of explicit prohibitions that, uh, people are thinking about in terms of the robotic domain in real life. Um, um so let's get back to, uh, this, this clause in, uh, one of the sentences where you said for the time being, Intelligent, super intelligent machines that pose an existential threat to humanity are the least of our worries. So, for the time being, that that's that's <laughs> just sits there like a an ominous cloud. Well, I, I guess I, I use that that phrase not to be ominous, but rather to not, you know, I, I don't want to eliminate the possibility of such a thing ever happening. So I, I guess I was using that phrase as, as a way to avoid, the, you know, coming down hard on one side or the other about whether, you know, that concern is inherently silly or eminently reasonable. But I, I did want to highlight the fact that it, if it is possible at all, then that's something that's actually more long-term future concern. I, I, I don't believe that in the, the near term, we should be focused on that because I think there's a lot of near term challenges with regard to robot ethics that do deserve our attention. And attention is something of a limited resource. So uh, you shouldn't completely just, you know, discount it. But, uh, but there's a lot of near term issues that I think uh, we should focus on. Very good. That, and it's interesting because, you know, my interpretation of for the time being versus your original meaning is a good example of just how difficult it is to make intention crystal clear, even when two humans are talking to each other. <laughs> no, that's absolutely uh, correct. And uh, yeah. it's actually a lot of what I'm interested in in my research is, is conversational pragmatics. And that's an entire field about, you know, how do people actually 
infer the appropriate intentions from speech when uh, two strings of words can, you know, have vastly different meanings depending on, you know, conversational context and who's speaking and common ground and, and many other things. So Absolutely. Hey, this was great. Thanks for talking to us. And uh, I hope people will read the article in the January issue of Scientific American, The Case for Robot Disobedience. Gordon Briggs, thanks very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read Pauline Gagnon's article, The Forgotten Life of Einstein's First Wife, physicist Mileva Einstein. And check out the latest episode of The Nature Podcast, where a surprise guest joins the nature team to play a game of science taboo. Surprise! I'm the guest. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.